Thorn in Your Side is a podcast recorded on the various lands of First Nations peoples, land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. While there's air that is breathed and water that nourishes and provides, ownership of this land remains unresolved. Respects are paid to elders past and present in the ongoing quest for self-determination and reclamation of land. Hello everyone, welcome to Thorn in Your Side. My name is Michael, I go by the internet as M. And I'm still holding to the dream of um, trying to belt out these episodes either weekly or at a pinch, fortnightly. I've added an extra demand to the burden of, of trying to fulfill that personal contract to the world. Recently I've decided to venture into the wonderful world of platform work. This is to supplement a job as a community development worker. Recently I've passed the very unfamiliar milestone of two years of sustained work with my current employer. That's a new thing for me, given the very finite nature and ways to which the community development sector and community services sector in general is often resourced. So this is strange new ground for me. And in a bittersweet way, it's it resulted in me finding another barrier in that I'm struggling to find ways of actually saving money as a community development worker with the wage situations that I have wedded myself to in this role. So while I'm very passionate about it, get a lot of satisfaction out of it, feel like I'm doing stuff that's worth it, the foster impact is is that any ways of putting money into long-term things like one's own house or possibly even a retirement nest egg, heaven forbid if I'm even actually thinking that far at this juncture, that's a bit hard to do in Sydney as a community worker so hence looking into platform work so it's it's been interesting so far I think things definitely came to a a very nice crescendo uh, last night actually when um when I did an order and um, I had a client that was actually quite willing to pay 30 35 dollars all up including delivery for a medium-sized tub of Ben and Jerry now, the, the mystery of all of that was revealed once I dropped the ice cream at this fellow's doorstep. The guy opened it and then replied, Thanks, man. You're a lifesaver, bro. Have a good morning. So I think that pretty much answers everything regarding that particular order request. So I'm hoping moving forward with this side job that, that, that I can definitely find a mutual benefit with the stoner market and tap into it on an ongoing basis. Who I have with me here today is pretty much someone that I want to be when when I grow up. It's it's Sam, who's an associate professor in in Newcastle. She has a background in occupational therapy, definitely a very loud voice in the community services sector, particularly within mental health service delivery. She has also a socialist bent, and she's definitely progressed that or explored that through previous election ticket up her neck of the woods as well. So there's a lot there that I'd like to chat with Sam about, and I'm very, very grateful that she's she's come in this afternoon. Uh, Originally, I was going to go up to Newcastle Beach to enjoy a bit of sun and a bit of surf, but unfortunately for said commitments I've mentioned earlier in the episode, we've met halfway and we're we're pretty much doing what is, um, I suppose, standard practice these days by doing everything online. So, hi Sam, how's it going? Well, everything's good here. Thank you for the invitation. I'm sorry you couldn't get to see the beach, but it was it has been raining, so you probably haven't missed too much today. Okay, well, it's quite sunny down here. You're telling me that um, it's still a bit blustery and, and rainy up that way. Well, we had a little bit of rain and a lot of wind, so it'd be choppy surf for you, so you're probably safer in Sydney. Okay. Oh, well, in the end of the day, good choice then. So Sam, how are things going at the moment? And I mean, for me, I'm very mindful about how I allocate my time because at the moment I'm going around like a headless chook and I'm I'm wearing my professional hat. I'm wearing my activist hat. It looks like I'm also wearing this side job hat now. So I'm just trying to wonder how to fit it all in. 
How do you divest your time as a professional and as an activist? I wouldn't mind getting your insight on that one. Well, I think it depends on what role I'm in. Obviously, working in the university sector in the last, in 2020, a lot of my time, I, I'm the program director for the occupational therapy course up here in Newcastle, but I'm also what they call a chair of teaching and learning. So I was, everything was being funneled through me. Every time something changed due to COVID, which was every week or so last year, everything got channeled through me to our all the health sciences programs. So I think in terms of self-care and balancing, I think I what I try and do is I, I just try and work on the things that I have to do. And then some of the things that I want to do, which sometimes that's the activist work that can sometimes have, unfortunately take backstage, if you like, because I think first as activists, we have to look after our own mental health and particularly last year, I think everybody, depending on what sector you worked in, we were all pretty wrung out by the end of the year. But what I try and do is I try and do some advocacy work within the university. So obviously I'm in the university union, the NTU, and I try and support my colleagues that are involved in discussions there. And then within the local community, if there's any, as things arise, so there was the Black Lives Matter marches, etc. rather than being, I wasn't involved in organising those, um, but I, I kind of attended as many things as I could. I think that sometimes as an activist, there's peaks and troughs of what you can do in relation to your own headspace as well so you have to look after yourself first because if we're in it for the long haul it's a marathon not a sprint sometimes and I think we have to kind of consider that in terms of our own balancing of, of our work life rest and play kind of approach to life yeah I've definitely had a bit of a think guiding the stuff that I should be getting into these days it's not really a case of just trying something and see if it works I think there's been a very considered thought about how I can invest my time and plus there's a lot of uncertain things going on at the moment in previous episodes wherever I've been speaking with at the time we, we've definitely had much discussions on the changing face of the, the university sector over the past year pandemic impacts can't be underestimated it's but ultimately and and most uh, obviously it has changed quite dramatically how how one gets an education i definitely had a bit of a culture shock regarding finishing off the arse end of my master's degree with it mainly involving online chatter with my thesis supervisor i'm very grateful in a way i didn't have the, the online or the the lectures and the tutorials to finish off the degree but one thing that my thesis supervisor did say to me, though, is that um, her workload went up astronomically because of the online aspect. With the changes, there hasn't really been that sense of really checking how one's labor is really accounted for and expressed and practiced within the online pandemic setting. Would that be a bit of a concern for you, Sam? Because at the moment, it feels for me that the, the lines, well, within the work rest play stuff, particularly over the last year, have become quite blurred. I think what initially what happened in Newcastle, I think we were a little bit different to some areas because in Newcastle we went online and we only had a week to prepare all our material. So that was happened last April. And so that was very rapid transition to trying to work out how to teach. I, I work in health sciences. So we had to work out what we could do online and what we just had to shelve in terms of putting it off till we could get back to face-to-face. So there was a lot of curriculum changes involved and we all had to get used to being on Zoom. And that's a kind of a different way of interacting with the students as well, because when you're in the classroom, obviously people are more willing to participate and when they're online, they're more reticent. So we just had to come up with some strategies there. We were slightly different because Newcastle, we decided, or well, I didn't decide, but we were told to go back to face-to-face teaching. So we've, we've been face-to-face teaching from July, from our second semester onwards. But what actually happened was that we had to have smaller class sizes. So we had to do more tutorials. So if I had 100 students, for example, and we would normally have five classes, we had to go down to seven to fit them in the rooms to allow for distancing. And then we had some people doing hybrid so that there were some people that were, as they had their COVID tests, et cetera, So we had to run most of the tutorials so that we were doing face-to-face teaching, but also had a laptop with some guides and students online in different places around the place. So for really practical degrees like ours and physio and all the other health science courses where there's normally a lot of hands-on, it meant doing a lot of background curriculum work. So it did increase people's workload because we had to think of kind of um, 
inventive ways of actually teaching our content so that obviously you want health professionals that have got practical skills so we had to do that yeah so it was it was pretty hectic there and um it did increase people's workload this year i've just got back to work so i'm doing everyone's workload we have a in, within the universities every university every place has a different workload model and that makes it really complicated and particularly for casual staff who are 100% teaching their workloads been really been fluctuating and if there's not been much money up here for casual budgets so some people that have relied on that as an income have really been impacted by the financial stresses in the university. It sounds like the downside of casualization definitely quite apparent at this point in time. Um, Just one thing you were mentioning there before, Sam, and with the discipline of the faculty and of the types of things that you teach within health sciences, I would imagine then that um, there's an amount of placement that needed to be done. So how how have you been able to, to negotiate that within an online setting doing the placement work? Well, each health profession has its own way of approaching placements and what people have to come out of the degree with. Some programs are competency-based, so they're not linked to hours. And so it's a question of making sure that all the students got an opportunity to go out on placement and be competent. Most of our programs, if I speak about mine in occupational therapy, we offered some of our students, we had a lot of cancellations, so we had to change the way we normally do them. So I have our fourth year's We have excess hours in our degree so that we give people a bit longer placement than they actually need to be able to graduate and tick a thousand hours off. So we had a little bit of legroom, but essentially what most of the degrees have done and that I'd suggested as chair of teaching and learning was that we reduce the the amount we focused on our third years and fourth years and reduce the placement hours for the first and second year so that they can catch up as they go through the degree. We've just got to keep an eye on their hours and competencies. We were quite lucky that we managed to place all of our students. And where we had a shortfall, we ended up doing simulation so that there was some clinic work where we had simulated clients so that we had actors coming in or we had um, people online so people could practice that way. So we've we kind of muddled through and so the people that are listening that are relying on new graduates coming out you can rest assured that we've had to document absolutely everything for each year group so that we can demonstrate how we are making sure that every student that comes through graduated with the competencies or the practical skills or and the hours that they required for their degree so it's, that's been very tricky it's a I'm, I'm getting much better at using spreadsheets because I've got like every thousands of spreadsheets <laughs> for all the different programs that we run. And with the casualization stuff, what that means is that people that aren't familiar with universities, and I won't bore people with it, but most academics are employed to do loosely over a whole year, 40% of their time teaching, 40% of their time doing research. And that includes supervising and as well as doing your own stuff and applying for grants. Mm. And 20% of what they call service. And so I think what happened last year, and probably we'll see that as we move forward this year as well, we rely on casual budgets so that we can maintain our research time. And because the casual budgets have been cut, not only have the casuals lost their hours, but the people that are employed kind of in an ongoing way have lost a lot of their teaching support. So people are doing going to be doing this year more teaching and more marking than they've probably done for a while I think that that's going to impact on research outputs for most people I mean that's quite hectic there is the argument there about staff increasingly getting tasks placed upon them that might exceed the actual hours being allotted so within this changing environment it sounds like Sam you've you've taken some measures to countenance that I suppose on the other end of the spectrum I have heard some stories from other universities, namely the one that I've finished my master's degree in, uh, (laughs) where increasingly stuff has been plonked on students and teachers and tutorial deliverers to be able to just pretty much figure it out themselves without there being a proactive plan from the, the coordinators front. I might try to introduce here a little bit of the union argument, Sam, because you're a member of the NTEU. Yeah. It seems to be reflected in, in your professional approach. So how much would the the union movement and unionised people be able to influence and also add value to providing more effective ways of delivering education right now? 
I think one of the, the big things is, I have to say this, that within every university, there's different approaches to this. So some people will have had a bad experience and some people will have had an okay experience as a, a casual doing tutorials. Normally what we expect is that if, say, if we're employing five casuals to teach a course, that the course coordinators will map out what's going to happen in each tutorial but that happens in varying degrees so the student experience should be the same if you're paying for a course you should get the same material covered so one of the things from a union point of view the problem was that last year was that we were kind of dealing with shifts in covid numbers and hours we were teaching so for one of my courses instead of having two hours for a tutorial we could only have an hour so i had to condense all the time in that instance, I did all my own tutorials and because it was just too hard to get other people in just to wing it, whereas other people, I think they were made to do that. So that's probably where I think towards the end of last year, where we were going back to face-to-face -face teaching, that created different issues than the Zooming everything. It was actually slightly harder. I mean, from a union point of view, what we would say is that we have to stick to the workloads and, and argue very strongly what the workloads are and whether they're realistic. So the union... Kind of have this weird structure where we have a head of school and then we have like the management and sometimes individual faculties have their own workload models so the ntu at newcastle for example is kind of trying to get involved so there's one generic workload with a maximum number of teaching hours instead of just numbers being plucked from the sky what is happening is that in our place is that we've been given a certain number of hours and if you're over hours we are being allowed some schools and some faculties have been told that there's no extra money. In my degree that I teach, we're two staff members down because they offered early retirement to someone at the end of last year and we lost them. And we also lost a colleague who got a promotion and went to La Trobe. So we're two staff down. So we're a little bit lucky, well, lucky, unlucky. If we all tried to teach their hours as well. We'd be massively over. So we're being offered some money from that. However, in other universities, people are just being told there's no casual and you've got to teach all your own stuff and that people are not used to that. What I would say is if you're in that position, you should go to the NTU delegates in your area and let them know what's going on because silence and not telling people what's happening in your own area means that often the, the union aren't aware unless you voice it. So I guess from a union point of view, from an activist point of view, if you're feeling under pressure or anything's happening, you must let someone in the union know. Don't just put up with it because it might be that your particular boss has interpreted the rules in a particular way. Yeah, I do think, I mean, one of the things that's been um, spoken around is that women in particular who have childcare responsibilities are likely to be the ones who's over time research output suffers because when they get home some people carry on working which is not what we want but they do people with children got very strict time frames and so really we've got to look at the gender equity issues as well as we move forward and also because casuals are often women as well and so we want to make sure they're not being overworked you know they're not being treated as teaching slaves if you like for the people that have employed them and they've been given too much marking one of the initiatives that they were trying to push through at our place was the guy who i'm sure i named this but um was trying to make it so that what we normally have and it, it's even difficult is that we get given an hour for each student to mark their work and someone further up the food chain was trying to make it so that we were only allocated 30 minutes per student to mark all their assessments for a course which as you can imagine is not possible so the union pushed back against that at newcastle and they changed their mind they haven't brought that in but if you're a casual worker or you're an academic and your your boss is saying or your line manager is saying that you've only got 30 minutes or 20 minutes to mark an assignment where you used to have 40 that's the kind of thing you need to voice to the union delegates so they know what's happening on the ground because it's very easy in the university to feel quite isolated and not feel that you've got a voice. So I think that that's really super important. At Newcastle, we all voted, uh, you know, and there was the NTU themselves was trying to bring in things where they did deals with different universities for everyone to have a pay cut. At Newcastle, we all voted against that, so that didn't happen. So that's the other thing, that there was a kind of a rank-and-file group that was opposing some of those measures by the NTU executive to take pay cuts. So, And at Newcastle, we, we just didn't do it. We didn't go with that. 
It certainly seems to be a, a great influence then with the Newcastle brand, with the NCEU. I, I do agree with your sentiment there, Sam, that there isn't a blanket approach that you can deliver across the, the university sector. Different campuses have different issues. The experience with University of New South Wales is, is that I think it has been a case of the chickens coming home to roost. I'm not sure if you're aware of the, the introduction of this trimester system. Oh, trimesters, yes, I know, but yes, yes, we're resisting. Yeah, and I think that's definitely something to really rail against, given that it has been tried in one union. I think there's now the urge to try to get this happening in other university institutions as well. But although I think this last year has really shown how much introducing a structure like that can be so damaging, what was done in the past was was really pretty much just leveraging everything towards the international student, I guess you can call it market, where if you introduce a trimester system, you can bring in international students very quickly. International students, of course, are, are here to basically get the degree and get out. And that's a pretty obliging situation for a university looking to increase the turnout magnifold. But with this pandemic, suddenly the, the influx of students got, uh, suddenly the tap was just switched off. And all of a sudden, University of New South Wales is floundering. So it's very uncertain what's to, to happen into the future rather than suddenly, and I guess what I was alluding to earlier, workers at the bottom of the food chain and students really copying a lot of the burden while the ones up top are, are floundering a bit. I can't speak on behalf of what's going on with the local branch of the NTU there, but I guess what's essentially happening here is, is that different issues within different campuses and also different challenges within each campus as well. I think one of the things is that I, I can't speak for the University of New South Wales, but there has been conversations in Newcastle about the trimester system. And because we are a regional university, and, and this would be true even for people within Sydney, from my perspective, it disadvantages students from a lower socioeconomic background because with the trimester system, it's quick and fast through 10 weeks of teaching instead of longer semesters. And there's not the breaks where they can earn money and when you're actually in the trimester, there's very little time to do paid work. So certainly people that I know in that system have found that. And that's certainly something we, we've been fighting against at Newcastle. Someone from University of New South Wales came to Newcastle and, and muted that idea. It was also for the domestic students to try and spin them through the system quicker. But of course, what happens is it becomes really super problematic because we have two 13-week semesters and two weeks of exams at Newcastle still. We, we follow that old model. And we're trying to resist that. Also, from a teaching point of view, even though in theory, what they try and say is, oh, you'd only, you only teach two semesters and then you have only teach two trimesters and then you get the third one free to do your own work. It, people I've spoken to, it, it never, ever works out that way. So you're just constantly teaching and marking because for those of you who aren't familiar and might not be have a teaching background, what happens is, Obviously, when a student gives in an essay, it's got to be marked by someone. And so what happens is as an academic, you end up marking while you're teaching. And so to prevent that, what most people do is they mark in the mid-semester recess. Because if you've got 1,000 word assessments to mark, mm. that takes like 35 hours, 40 hours. And otherwise, you've got to squish it in while you're doing your standard teaching as well. And so the people that I know that do the trimester system, what they found is they're marking while they're trying to prepare the next trimester. Yeah, there's just no break. There's just no break. And everyone's students and uh, staff alike are finding it very stressful. Yeah. Last year, that was pretty much the, the end of my coursework, and I definitely had the impression of it really being pushed through. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I really can't uh, complain given uh, what I found myself falling into this year, but uh, hang on. No, we're in 2021. The year before last, because time yeah. has stopped after last year. <laughs> but yeah, the year before last, when I was doing my coursework, when they introduced the trimester system. So again, uh, working full time, working on a part-time study load within the trimester system, never really got a sense of a break, to be quite honest with you. It works quite well when students are passing everything as well. But then if yeah. they happen to fail a course, it, it I mean, even at our place, trying to create a new program enrollment plan for people is difficult. But with the trimesters, if they're mandated prerequisite courses, it creates chaos. It creates even more chaos for individuals. 
I think a lot of universities are still enrolling people who are currently overseas into all program first year. Certainly that's been happening around the place, I know. Um, <laughs> our university's done that. So, And then because it's we're teaching face-to-face, not all the classes have been offered online. So the international students have been enrolled in things where they're going to take an extra year of their degree because they're, they're waiting to come back. So it's pretty great for them as well. Yeah. So. It still sounds like that case of trying to do a bit of planning and then hopefully it'll still come out in the wash, leveraging on the fact that everything or a little bit comes back to normal. But as we've seen with this pandemic stuff, I mean, the the, the things that can happen into the future are quite unpredictable. Yeah, and look, and the other thing is for our international students who are currently in Australia, many of them can't go home. So their welfare is part of my concern as well. We need to make sure we're looking after our the international students at the universities have already got here. The universities need to be doing welfare checks and making sure they're okay because they're only young and they're just like anyone. They want to go home and see their families and they haven't been able to go because if they go, they know they might not be able to get back and finish their degrees. So there's a lot of pressure on the international students as well who are currently here. So I really feel for them. Yeah, uh, I think the, the negative circumstances have become quite invisible. And I think that might be part of the challenge as well to, to actually illuminate, identify, and then try to, to respond to all of that as well, rather than going towards more Darwinistic measures where you introduce stuff and it's like, well, if you're up for it, you are. If you're not, too bad, so sad. That increasingly placing the risk and responsibility and burden upon students and, and staff on the bottom of the food chain. I wanted to move on a bit about some service sector discussion there, Sam, because I know that you've got some views on that as well, as do I. So if you wanted to talk a little bit about the types of forums that you've been engaged in, both professional and activist, where you have looked to, to speak up in regards to or to provide any critique and criticism upon the community health sector, where things can be improved, where the gaps are. Yeah, and, and we'll try to keep this, <laughs> we'll try to keep this within about 10 to 20 minutes but let's see what happens. (laughs) Yeah, I think if we just talk about where we are at the moment within the mental health sector, we've got the public health sector, which is kind of moving along its normal pace. What we've also got is we've got a whole series of, I'll I'll refer to, they they get referred to as non-government organisations or community-based organisations. So they're the people that some other people might recognise more as charities which are now running on business models alone because of the National Disability Insurance Scheme that's supporting a lot of people with mental health issues, with mental illness. In years to come, Disability Care Australia will ensure Sophie and Sandy and so many other young people with disability will have the security and dignity every Australian deserves. This, above all, is why Australians are so overwhelmingly supportive of disability care. The people who have gathered here today from around the country to witness this debate know what this means. There will be no more in principle and no more when circumstances permit and there will be no turning back. I commend this bill to the House. The National Disability Insurance Scheme, NDIS, is a once-in-a-generation social and economic reform that will empower people with disability to choose and achieve their goals in inclusive communities and workplaces. So, how does the NDIS work? How is it different to the previous system? And why should you register as an NDIS provider? If the NDIS was perfect, then I would be in, in theory, giving people a plan where they can get the level of support that they need is a great thing. I mean, it's a socialist, it's what we would advocate for. But one of the issues has been, as a socialist, I've been aware right from the beginning that the National Disability Insurance Scheme, whilst it's it should be an excellent scheme for individuals who are living with disabilities and living with mental illness, what really what it's been is... In some ways, it's been a kind of a sneaky privatisation of a whole sector 
that were providing free services to individuals under a non-government organisation, not-for-profit way of operating. What the National Disability Insurance Scheme has done is it's forced all of those organisations over to what I would refer to as an activity pay scheme. Everybody that goes there has to be on a plan and be accountable so that they're making money off of individuals going and it's changed the emphasis of a lot of those organizations because they have had to go to a business model now if all things were equal and there were lots of providers and they were all providing excellent services that would be fantastic but obviously in rural and regional areas although the idea of the national disability insurance scheme was intended ethos of it is that people will have choice and they can spend their dollars wherever they want to go where the best services are obviously if you're living in small towns or in a rural setting often there's only one provider so and what's happened is that the public health sector has kind of stripped back other services because of the NDIS so there's a lack there's sometimes there's less choice of where to go and there's less public sector The interesting thing about your neck of the woods, Sam, is that the Hunter New South Wales region was where the NDIS was first piloted. Us and Geelong were the first lot to roll it out. So I have to say up here, all the health professionals involved in it have been doing it for a while. Most of the kinks were ironed out. But of course, what happened was, particularly the year before last and last year, as the NDIS rolled out, it meant that a lot of services were closing their doors, the free services, the drop-in services where people could go intermittently. There's very few leisure and social activities and support services now where someone can just drop in because they have to have an NDIS plan and they have to be involved in that way. So I think what we're finding and what people are reporting on is that if people, particularly for our more chaotic people that are very unwell and or become unwell and have a rapid de-escalation of their mental health they don't even know where to go they don't know how to get an NDIS plan it really it disadvantages our most vulnerable people that haven't got good social networks or families to help put that scaffolding in place for them if they touch base with the acute inpatient services in the public health system The social workers in that sector can help people get involved in the NDIS. But it's all those other people that are out there that are needing services but haven't got engaged and have lost out that is most concerned. I've got to say with my own personal uh, professional experience that I'm finding that within the allied health sector or within uh, the staff labour force that's within public hospitals and all the different little services that splinter thereof, there is that that huge push that whenever a client is placed onto NDIS that public health system immediately shunts them in onto NDIS and through that you would find that I would hazard say that clients lose a lot of the resources and supports that they would have previously been afforded within the, the hospital sector once they move into NDIS and it's also a bit of a, a system and cultural change as well and that suddenly there's a lot more burden upon the client to make sure that their own services are in place and they need to have an idea of what kind of services are good for them and I mean, you were mentioning before, Sam, that you've gotten very good at using Excel spreadsheets. They've suddenly got to get very good at um, at balancing budgets and uh, amounts that have been allotted to their own care plans. So it's a very big ask, but I think it's very much the syndrome of introducing a market-based model. I just go back to this, this fact, Sam, that you were privy to the rolling out of this scheme at a pilot stage. The stuff that you identified... I mean, it's, it's quite clear the hazards that immediately arise when you introduce some, a framework of this kind. Did you identify this stuff early on? What was the response to it? Did the government seem to have a proactive response or appreciation of those issues? Or was it a case of just turning a blind eye? Do you have any reflections on that process? What happened was that they ironed out some of the issues and they were proactive about it. The NDIS up in the Hunter... What had happened was a lot of the people that had worked for the Commonwealth Rehab Service, CRS, moved into management positions in the NDIS up here. As one federal thing closed, they got jobs in that sector. So we were lucky because there were experienced managers. They did try to remove some of the barriers. So I think some of the lessons learned here and in Geelong have got fed back into the system. 
But one of the issues in my own profession is that people have got to learn to write in a problem-oriented way so that people get the support because occupational therapists and, and mental health workers, often we're quite optimistic and the way people have been writing reports has been very strengths-based. So this is what the client is able to do rather than what they're not able to do. We're having to teach our students, and I'm doing some work with the local health district at the moment on assessment, and we're going to be talking about writing reports for the NDIS this week, actually, for a big chunk of Sydney occupational therapists and mental health public about the fact that you have to actually write in a different way for the NDIS. It's very problem-oriented sector, so... You have to write your reports more clearly. So I think one of the glitches that's been where people haven't got services, it's because the way service assessors have been or professionals assess them. So I think everybody across the country is getting more used to the way you have to write for the NDIS. I think there's an element of, of gaming it as well. Like that's so interesting what you're saying that you need to take a problem-based approach to it. We've all been trained and encouraged to take a strength-based and especially yeah, and like... A recovery-oriented approach. Yeah. yeah. It goes out the window. It's madness. And it's even tailored into the NDIS assessment as well. Like when you're with a client or even the client themselves, they're prompted to say, well, what are your strengths? What are your passions? What goals do you want to have? Then what or, you've got then as an OT, what as an occupational therapist, what we've got to do is identify whether the person can get to the place, whether they can do those things with minimal assistance from one person or independently. Yeah and um, it's around the language I think one of the mm. things that I'm on a mental health steering committee for OT Australia which is our peak body and I, I think one of the things that's become uh, is, is also worth discussing is the fact that public health services and other sectors which were non-government oriented we had what I would refer to as a skill building or a rehabilitation kind of approach to uh, working with people with mental health issues in the sense that when people are feeling well, you can do some skills building with them so that they can do the things themselves rather than relying on other people. So communication, use of transport, and you slowly teach people new skills and you withdraw services. I think one of the big contradictions with having a what is essentially a for-profit system for service delivery is that what's happened is that they've got these big organisations are not paying for psych nurses or occupational therapists. They're getting disability workers who are often very fantastic people but are generally care-oriented rather than teaching and rehab-oriented. So there's really nothing in it for the NGO. The best ones are doing it, but some of them are just like, they don't know how to teach and scaffold new skill building. Also, so the person with the mental health issue is just getting taken along to things and you see people out in the community the best people are engaging with their the person they, they're taking very often you go to a restaurant and the disability workers on their phone and the person who's there who's paying for the services they're not engaging with them it seems to be arbitrary how that happens because we're trained people have got training in how to you know how to be strengths-based in the way even the language you use to individuals to encourage them mm. rather than it all being on this deficit basis so i i think long term that that's going to be something that has to be picked up in a policy setting logic would suggest that <laughs> i think it's turkey's voting for christmas isn't it you know if they make people independent then there's less work for the ngos so yeah Absolutely. There's a, a massive contradiction and a dissonance there between the intention of a service and actually the way it's rolled out. And there's very little auditing. Oh, my God. That, you know, that's one of the other major factors that I, as a, an experienced clinician, as an experienced manager, some sectors of the federal government are so audited, you know, in terms of, say, Centrelink, you know, individuals receiving Centrelink are audited all the time in terms of what have you been doing, what's the quality of what you've been doing. What I've really found is that within the NDIS sector, everybody's been able to set up in private practice. And not all private practices are providing the same level of service. And there's very little top-down auditing of the quality of what's actually happening on the ground as well. Yeah. Once people are getting plans, it's a massive gap. In response, I would agree that the, the huge criticism against NDIS is that there is a real lack of quality assurance, a quality assurance framework. 
back in the block funded system or uh, back when a lot of the services were directly and intimately funded by government, there were definitely those regulatory frameworks in place, different services needed to need to abide by. But look, I'll, I'll liken it uh, and just humor me here, Sam, as I attempt to draw a long bow here, but I liken it to my current ride sharing experience where I've set myself up pretty much as my own business. I've got my own car, I've got my own smartphone, I've purchased my own gear to be able to get people from A to B and deliver food and that sort of thing. But there's no one there really to have a look at what the quality of my car is, the quality of the bags that I'm using, how powerful my phone is, my ability to, or my literacy on using smartphones. None of that's being checked yet. Here's an initiative where the the expectation is is that the market will sort itself out. Best workers will survive. Best clients will find them. A lot of parallels, I would say, there between ride sharing and NDIS. It it all harks back to this idea of a market-based model correcting everything. Absolutely. And and, and the other people that I I think who are most disadvantaged by this market approach is people who don't know any health professionals socially. Mm. So that tends to be, I mean, I come from... I'm an associate professor, but I grew up on the housing commission. And I, when I went to uni, we had to get a reference to go to OT school back in the day. I had to ask my GP. My GP was the only person I knew that worked in a profession. Yep. So when we've got families who have children or people in their care with very complex needs, they don't always know. They haven't got the social networks to know to ask to come to me for example I get a lot of people saying who would I recommend as a physio or an OT or in pediatrics or mental health and I'm able to make recommendations but if you don't know anyone you're just going through the phone book and while I would say that I think that most people are doing a really fantastic job no one's really putting the microscope on what's happening in the practice sector and what we're finding and I think across health and allied health and in psychology what we're finding is a lot of new graduates are setting up in private practice quite quickly after they've graduated and so what we used to do in the, in public health while it was never I mean it wasn't ideal But what you found is that people learn by role modeling from more experienced professionals because you're working next to people. So when you're a baby OT, you're kind of going out and you're working with more senior people. And what's tending to happen is under the NDIS model is we've got OTs going out and people that are managing them are saying, oh, here you are, here's 30 clients. You've got 30 clients and with all complex needs. Mm. And I have my new grads ringing me going, oh, I've been given this huge workload. What should I do? And I'm, I often say, well, I think you shouldn't do it. You should find another provider. And so what happens is that the these providers are saying, oh, yeah, we can provide this service, but they're filling up their jobs with often new graduates that don't have those skills to deal with those really complicated people. Yeah, and it's a matter of numbers, how many clients that yeah, you can absolutely. clear, how many people you can bring on and assess and link up to different absolutely. services. That- because there's no, because there's no, the Department of Community, I think it's Department of Aged Care and Home Services, that's all gone. There's particularly for people that have got an intellectual disability, a learning difficulty. Hmm. That whole public health sector has just disappeared. As the NDIS rolled out, all the states got rid of most of their state services. So those people who are living with children with complex learning difficulties, they're entirely on the NDIS. In mental health, we do still have that fallback system where there are public health, mental health services engaged, but so there is a catch in a place where they can be caught if things do go badly. But yeah, I think the quality auditing part of it is really, they're kind of catching up with that as they go. Quality of plans, the cost of it as well, the, the actual cost rather than having things centralised in public health, the amount people are charging for individual sessions is excessive as a socialist i look at it and go what is the most effective way of doing these you know making sure that everyone's getting what they need and this is not it it's not working at the moment I might go to the final point to cross over in this episode, Sam, and uh, something twigged uh, that you were mentioning earlier is the role of the GP. And through my own personal experience within the health sector, so much is underpinned upon how 
the relationship one has with their GP, them being the first port of call. And then again, it's like with the GP, are they switched on? Do they have that approach where they know who to refer to? Or is it very much an individually based gatekeeping approach? So much power placed upon a doctor. Is that something that um, you'd be inclined to agree with, Sam? Or is there a room for some sort of service rearrangement where the GP doesn't have so much authority over the way a person progresses through a health system. Uh, I'm just wondering what your thoughts on that are, just given my own personal experiences. Yeah, look, I, I think that the thing that everyone has to recognise is that doctors are individuals. And so the service you're going to get is going to vary from individual GP to individual GP. So I think one of the most important things is this finding a GP that you feel that you've got trust in, in terms of medication. But also, I think one of the things that you need from a GP is someone that knows who to refer on to, like you said, so that they're not trying to manage quite complex medications themselves, that they are referring people on. So if you've got a mental health issue and you go to your GP, they, they can start you off. And I have to say that most GPs would start people off by getting them to have a Medicare program of some psychology or some OT, those 10 services that you can get annually. Most people are pretty good. I guess if you feel that the GP isn't referring you on or that you're not on the right medication and that they need some overview, obviously a lot of GPs might like try to hold the clients, uh, their clients to themselves rather than referring on to a psychiatrist. And the other thing to do is to ask if you've got friends that have got mental health issues is to ask who they found to be good as GPs and who they found to be good as psychiatrists. Because even within psychiatry, there's obviously a huge range of people with different skill sets. Yeah. Ideally, you'd have a GP that knows that, say, 60% of people don't respond to their first antidepressant that they take a really good history so that they're not missing someone that's actually got a bipolar and needs a mood stabilizer instead of putting people on a antidepressant and then having them skyrocket off. You know, so I think you want a GP that will sit and listen to your story. And if you've got a mental illness, you need to go and tell if they're not asking the right questions, you've got to be prepared to be able to share quite a lot of your story with the GP as well. So they really know what's going on. I think from a GP, from a health professional point of view, we have to be able to ask the right questions. And, and, and sometimes that doesn't happen. So I guess working in the university sector, what I tend to see is because I, I work with a lot of young people that um, I have my students coming through and sometimes happens quite commonly is that particularly for people with bipolar disorder, and I'll just use that term, and other people might have known it as its old name, manic depression, before it got dsm 5 So what can happen with people who are just early experiencing those symptoms is that when they go, people tend to go to the GP when they're feeling very sad and very low in their mood. But they don't tell the GP that they ha also have times when they're feeling really happy and on top of everything and everything's fantastic and everything's a million miles an hour and they're on top of things. If they haven't had a full-blown, I might refer to it as a manic episode, they quite like that buzzy feeling that they get. And what can happen is you don't tell the GP the right information. So the GP automatically thinks, oh, this person is depressed. We'll put you on an antidepressant. And what happens is then that someone goes right up through the stages of not being depressed into it can trigger something else. So I think that there's a, what you want from a GP is someone will really listen to you and that knows the limits of their own skill set and that will refer on. I think there's a, a lot to be said about the strength of community literacy and the community understanding and the, the right and agency of patients and um, typical populations of people just to get together and say, well, look, I had a good experience with this GP, not so much a good experience with that one. This GP has a reputation. This one really doesn't really utilise their short consult to the best abilities that they can. Perhaps we could move towards somewhere where there is a lot more purchase on the power of community-informed service practice and, and understanding. But I would hazard to say at the moment, I think it's very much um, on its head where uh, the, the idea of the GP as a professional reigns, creates a passivity. I think some of the GP practices, because that is often the first point of contact, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for consumer advocates within those services, and they do tend to be very allied health and medically focused, um, whereby 
I think having known where to go for consumer advocacy is really key as well, because not only for people knowing who, who the good GPs are, but also being able to instill some hope in individuals that are feeling very unwell, that they can get better and that they can improve is absolutely vital. Because I think that essence of recovery is knowing that there is a hope for recovery rather than feeling like you, where you're a bit stuck. And there should be a lot more flexibility within the, the way things operate to have consumer advocates available to individuals with mental health issues. And I think probably New South Wales has been a bit slow on that. I've known Victoria has been a lot more upfront with that and employing <laughs> people as consumer advocates rather than not, uh, whereas we've really had to push that here. Yeah, it's often been the experience where Victoria will introduce some progressive delivery policy things and then you'll find a few years later that um, New South Wales will suddenly adopt some of, some of those. Uh, it's just something I've noticed through my previous roles. I mean, the Victoria Mental Health Service isn't, isn't without its uh, glitches, but certainly with the consumer advocacy, it's been a, a really great thing. And some of the NGOs are doing great work in that area. Yeah. I have a colleague, Priscilla Annals, who leads up research with consumers and getting that much more stakeholders, not about us, but with us approach to any research in the mental health field is, is really important rather than having a more of a paternalistic approach where health professionals know everything. It's, it's really opening up a lot more. And I think the more forward thinking organisations and health services are really that their leaders are trying to get more consumers involved in service delivery but I do think that at that first point of contact having consumer advocates that you can touch base with is really is, is probably one of the key things. Yeah uh, I think that might be a good note to finish on Sam just that idea of introducing into the system a sense of hope sense of options heaven forbid a return to advocacy and something that's a bit more community informed and where there's more participation within the community towards improvement of health stuff. I think, you know, like as a health professional, you can always tell people that things are going to improve and that if we find the right medication and let's look at like what you've achieved so far and have a really good strengths-based approach. But I think there's nothing like having someone that's been through a lived experience talking to another person that's going through that because it's a, it's a whole different dynamic there. Mm. Yeah, the peer support stuff and lived experience, that is stuff that I would like to try to cross in future episodes. Maybe we can have a chat more about that some other time, Sam. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, of course. We've covered a lot of ground today in the interests of a, of a socialised university, education and, and health sector, um, he's hoping. But yes. thank you for your time, Sam. Hope to keep in touch. Hope the weather gets better. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. Thanks, Sam. All the best. See you later. No problem. See you later.